Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneer's Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. There are lots of ways one might define a good leader, and many figures one could readily select as examples. But at Pioneer's Post, we're interested in a specific kind of leader. We're looking for those leaders who are both trying to make a difference and doing business differently. These are the leaders treading that fine line between money and mission for the benefit of people and planet. So welcome to the Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of PioneersPost.com. Hello and welcome to the Good Leaders podcast. It's Tim West here from Pioneers Post and my guest this week, Alice Williams from Luminary Bakery. Hello, Alice. Hi, thanks for having me. That's a pleasure. So, Alice, uh, Luminary is a bakery, but what kind of baking do you do and what is it that makes you a social enterprise? Sure. Um, we mostly bake sweet baked goods, so uh, celebration cakes, brownies, cookies, that type of thing. Um, and we run two cafes, so all the things you can expect to find in a cafe. Um, and we're a social enterprise because we do that to uh, create job opportunities for women who have experienced gender-based violence and multiple disadvantage. And what motivated you to put those two things together? Why bring together a bakery and some quite serious social issues? It started from the social issues, to be honest. So uh, I was working in the charity sector and meeting uh, local women who are experiencing homelessness, sexual violence, domestic abuse, um, and really wanting to do something to support those women. Um, there were brilliant services that helped women get to a point of safety. But then beyond that, um, she was getting stuck, um, particularly getting stuck in temporary accommodation and not able to move forward. So um, the gap that we saw was helping her to stand on her own own two feet after those experiences um, and most of the time she's been prevented from earning her own money and um, possibly hasn't got much education behind her um, so really wanted to provide something where uh, she could actually learn a skill a trade and start providing for herself and the reason we chose baking um, is purely uh, practical reasons so in my little team of volunteers who started it we had a couple of us who were uh, bakers they wanted to use their skills to help these women um, we knew each other because we worked in a local cafe um, so we were kind of in the food industry already and we had our first customer in that cafe um, so we tried it and we just uh, started teaching women in a local um, hostel how to bake and actually we've realized that um, baking is a skill that you can learn at any age and it's a career that you can get into at any age which is really helpful it's very uh, practical um, you don't necessarily need formal qualifications to be able to get by in the industry um, and we found that the women who started baking actually were fairly familiar with being in the kitchen they've cooked a lot they've been very resourceful and providing for their families um, but baking was perhaps a bit of a new spin on that for them so then it was just learning the the technical aspect you saw a very clear problem because of the work you're already doing. You landed on a solution that seemed to work. What what made you take that down a socially entrepreneurial route, though? Because maybe, you, I guess you could have stayed in your charity and, and tried to do the same thing. 
So what what made you actually say, oh, right, I'm going to set up a business? Yeah, that was actually because the, the ultimate goal was to be able to provide actual employment for these women. So we developed the training programs as a step towards that. Um, but the, the aim was always to actually employ women because I was getting frustrated, particularly that women were being sent on CV writing workshops and things. And they were like, I've got nothing to put on my CV. Um, I actually need an employer to take a chance on me and give me some work experience is what I need. Um, so that was the bit that we really wanted to um, provide. And so if other employers wouldn't take a chance, then you said, right, we'll, we'll be the employer. Exactly. And when, when you started then, um, very beginnings, can you tell me the sort of nuts and bolts of how much revenue you made in your first year? What sort of profit? What sort of impact? How many were in your team? Uh, we're going back 10 years because we're in our 10-year anniversary. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to be able to remember the specifics. Thank you. Um, but we were definitely very small in the early days. It was myself and some other volunteers. We were all doing it in our free time. Um, so, yeah, as much as we could manage in, you know, a few hours a week, really. Um and uh, that meant that definitely costs were low because obviously we weren't paying any team. Um, a very generous church let us use their kitchen for free. Um, so it was only really the cost of the ingredients we had to pay for. Um, and then uh, in terms of revenue, it was just about enough to cover those costs, really. So very, very small. Um, we eventually developed our training programs a bit more and started running them as, as grant funded training um, and then grew the business alongside that and managed to win some contracts to be able to um, cover the, the business costs and try and bring generate revenue that way um, our very first sales were um, wholesale customers we didn't really have a, another route the market um, there wasn't really a, an easy way to have an online store back then um, and we had this route through the cafe that we worked in it was a community cafe in east london and um, so we started stocking them and they sold a lot of cake so that was a good first customer um, and uh, built it from there but yeah the team was initially just myself and two others um, doing it in our free time okay so basically it was the product and baking itself in church halls and how how soon before the premises came along then before your cafes came along we so we started our baking project as it were back in 2013 and our first cafe or the first site that we had was 2017 so it was a good few years before we had our very own site so how long did it take before you knew you were onto something really special then both from a both from the impact you were having and also like a, a viable, quite exciting business? That's a good question. I think initially it was very much about helping a few women. If we were going to help one woman get into work, you know, we were doing something good. So our first cohort of women was six, um, and I think four of them graduated. Um, and that felt, the graduation for, for those guys felt significant because we'd, we'd done it. We'd helped women get to a point where they were employable. We were employing them ourselves within our business. Um, so that felt significant, um, but it definitely didn't feel like a viable business at that point. Um, I think, to be honest, the, the first time that I really felt like, you know, this is the real deal was when we had our name above a shop front. And were you paying yourself at that point then? I mean, or was this still a voluntary activity and you were earning your money as an employee somewhere else? 
Um, what was great was that the three of us all worked in that community cafe together. So as the business started to um, generate a bit more money uh, and as we started to get some grant funding into um, the Luminary Charitable programs, we were able to start dropping shifts here and there from that cafe and pick up a little bit of paid work with Luminary. Um, so it was very gradual. Um, we would do sort of an extra half a day a week, an extra day a week, etc. And uh, that was the beauty of being able to um, work shifts was that we could um, be quite flexible with it until eventually, you know, Luminary was generating enough to cover our salaries. And you, you mentioned three of you. Were you all sort of equal co-founders or were you the founder and they were supporting you? How did that work? It was a bit of a complicated start. So we were part of a bigger charity. So we were known as the um, Luminary Project. Um, so I kind of had the initial idea, um, but it wouldn't have happened without the other two because they're the bakers and I'm not. Um, so they were really instrumental to start with, but I was the sort of project lead, as it were. Um, and then those two um, moved on after a few years and we got other bakers in, etc. So I guess I'm the sort of founding member who's stuck with it. So how's the business looking now then in terms of your turnover and profit and, and some of your key impact figures and your, your team size and everything? Where are you at the moment? Um, financially, the last few years have been a real struggle. Um, obviously, the pandemic significantly impacted our sector. Mm. So um, our revenue has been uh, really impacted by that. And our costs have stayed roughly the same. We didn't want to have to lose any staff. Um, but we have eventually had to do that, unfortunately, um, and are trying to project realistic figures for for the coming year so um somewhere between 80 and 100k per month revenue um and trying to make sure that that is profitable on a monthly basis um just about um so our costs are still pretty high as well um in terms of impact we have a third of our team in the business are women that we've trained um and the team is about 30 of us um but lots of them are part-time um, so that's not full-time equivalents. And then on the charity, so we separated the, in 2019, when we came out of that um, incubator charity that we started as a project of, we then set up the Luminary Charity Entity and the Luminary Business Entity. So we have a bit of a unique social enterprise structure, but the um, charity entity has somewhere around 10 employees um, and they are training 56 women per year. Wow. Pretty impressive figures. And how how does the uh, charity relate to the business then? Is, is the charity the owner of the business or are they completely separate and just have an agreement between them? Um, the charity ha- um, owns shares in the business. So it's a significant right. um, shareholder, but it's not the only okay. shareholder. Okay, okay. Because you have equity investors and things like that as well, don't you? Yes, exactly. Or you, at least you're used to Comic Relief and I think and maybe yes. some others. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. Yeah, and yeah. some in- individuals as well. Great. And how, how important has that been to the way in which you've developed then to have people who are willing to invest in you? That has been uh, transformational, to be honest. We would not have been able to launch our second site um, if we didn't mm. have investment. Um, it, yeah, we wouldn't have been able to raise enough. We were operating as a charity, so we wouldn't have been able to raise enough grant funding to open a business Um venture um through charitable funding so it's been brilliant to have investors who really see it as um they're really looking for a social return on their investment as well as a financial one yeah and what brought you to social investment in the first place then i'm I'm, so you'll you'll have been thinking i guess that you needed money to expand 
you'll have had knowledge, you know, you're, you're, you're a business person, but you'll have had knowledge, I guess, mainly about the charity side of things. So how did you hear about social investment and how did you sort of plug yourself into the, the social investors who are around at the moment? Mm. We have always referred to ourselves as a social enterprise. So um, obviously that's not a legal term, but um, that's mm. how we operate. Um, and there's always been an element of trading to what we do. Um, so we have been, I guess, fairly well connected with uh, social in- investors who have wanted to invest into Luminary. So we've been approached a few yeah. times about that. Um, so that's what kind of got it on our radar. Um, so they've tried to woo you then, basically? Yes, a few of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Obviously, the, one, yeah, it took, uh, the ones that we've got now took a bit of us wooing them. Um, okay. But a bit of vice versa. Um, but then the, the way that we found these investors was actually through um, an impact accelerator um, course that we went on um, and there was the opportunity at the end of that to pitch for investment okay and so that resulted in as you said some individuals and some what foundations or social investors then coming up with the readies basically yes exactly it was mostly individuals through that um comic relief we already had a grant relationship and they had funded uh grant funded our training programs before um, and they were looking to increase their social investment so that was a nice opportunity to develop that relationship Great. And how does the dynamic of that work then? I mean, we, it, I've, I think it's quite interesting that you're in the business of, I shouldn't call it a business route, but you're, you're all about empowerment. And that's mm-hmm. a really important word. Often, though, when one gets in a relationship with investors, that's a power relationship as well, isn't it? And mm-hmm. I'm quite interested in, well, how do you feel within that power relationship? You know, do you feel uh, as though you're the one who, who still has the power or, or is it difficult sometimes? Uh, I think it is, um, the, they obviously have power, they're shareholders and they, sure. their money is important to us. So it is important that we take um, the accountability that we have to them seriously. Um, but I think our relationship with our investors is a small pool of people. So it is possible to keep them informed and take their ideas on but also for them to respect that we're the experts in what we do and I think that balance is there um I'm sure that will change over time but at the moment it very much feels like they and actually through a really difficult period like the pandemic I've seen them saying I trust your decision making in this I'm going to support you and back you um there isn't really a right way to approach this so we're going to support whatever you choose to do through this um and that's been that's been really empowering to me yeah, because I guess leadership, particularly through times like COVID, is going to be a, it's a lonely place, isn't it, often? Mm. And so if you've got some people on your board who are, are not just holding you to account, but actually championing you and, and mm. trusting you is the word you used, then I think that I guess that makes a big, big difference to your own well-being, but your own ability as a leader, I guess, too. Yeah, certainly. There's definitely times when I feel like I'm under a lot of scrutiny and that's that's appropriate sometimes too, but it, it makes me feel a bit on edge when that's the case. And it's, it definitely yeah. is a lot uh, easier to do my job when I really feel like we're all singing from the same hymn sheet. And I guess, of course, investors, I mean, you know, they're not, uh, they're not evil beings, at least in hopefully not in the social investment world. Mm. And so they, they'll often bring a lot of, um, they'll, they'll trust you to be the expert in what you do. But I guess they bring a lot of expertise themselves um, in a whole range of different areas. 
Exactly. It gives us access to loads of expertise that we wouldn't have otherwise. There's a guy on our board who has been on the board of big chain um, cafes. So he just has so much insight that we would pay a consultant a heck of a lot of money for. And he is giving us that for free because he wants us to succeed. Brilliant, as it should be. So let's let's get into a little bit of uh, back. Let's move away from the business itself for a moment. And we were talking about you as a leader. I'm quite interested in your journey as a leader. And to begin with, I, I wonder what your own background is. Where where were you brought up? What kind of education did you have? What what do you think has has channeled you into this position you're in now? Um, I grew up in South London, so not too far from where I work now. I've always been a Londoner. Um, I um, did fairly well at school. I was brought up um, in the church, so I was always kind of involved in community um, kind of schemes and, um, you know, supporting people around me. That's the example set by my parents. Um, I wanted to be a youth worker with my career, so... um, studied youth and community work at uh for my degree um and then got more and more passionate about um supporting women so then started volunteering and getting experience in um yeah the kind of frontline support work uh in terms of leadership I guess that has that's developed over time I have um often found myself in um I guess, sort of management positions um, or decision uh, kind of positions where I'm making decisions. Um, even in, you know, my part-time job while I was at school was working in Miss Selfridge and I managed to find myself as acting manager while I was like part-time um, doing a Saturday job. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, I've uh, been in management positions in a few different spheres Um but then leading a social enterprise has been a huge learning curve, particularly because I I don't have like business, um, I don't have a business degree. Um, I, I haven't been a CEO of another company and that's my job title at Luminary. Um, so yeah, I'm quite aware that everything I've learned really at Luminary has been on the job. Um, I've tried my best to, you know, take advice from people like we were just talking about and uh, kind of experience um, other social enterprises so I can see how they do things. Um, but over the last few years, I've really wanted to try and invest in my professional development. Um, so much of my effort has been into developing Luminary and I've realised, you know, 10 years in, I've not, I've probably neglected my personal development a little bit and professional development. So um, I'm actually... Um, now enrolled on a um a master's in um, voluntary sector management at Bayes Business School so I've just started that and it's so useful to actually now be learning frameworks and best practices and things I can put into my work. You're sort of retrofitting all the all the theory side of things into the knowledge you have already I guess. Yes exactly and and learning the ways that I've done it that are not the ways to do it. (laughs) And do do you suffer from things like imposter syndrome or or do you manage to kind of keep that away from definitely yeah I'm often in situations where I think why why am I here what what have I got to bring to this um yes I think that is a daily struggle for any leader probably and I think it is um quite well documented that you know women experience that more than men as well so yes it's Mm. definitely something that I um battle with regularly so let's ask you then about about some of your battles then what what's been the greatest challenge or battle that you've had to face so far as a, as a social business leader then? 
Um, I think financial struggles have been the overarching theme of most of the challenges. There have definitely been challenges of, um, you know, team feeling overwhelmed and overworked, but that would be rectified if we had more money to pay more people. Um, there have been, you know, ridiculous operational challenges like our Wi-Fi is down at the moment. And, you know, if I could just pay someone to sort that out, then that would solve everything. But in a small social enterprise, everyone's trying to do everything and there's not, uh, you know, there's not an IT department or whatever so um those kind of small business challenges I think but also balancing that with um impact means that it, it just costs us a lot more to do what we do than a normal business would to to train women and um, to create employment opportunities just you know generates costs rather than income so um balancing those decisions of well this is this is the right decision for the women that we're supporting but this is going to impact our profit um those kind of decisions are um often a a debate to be had um but all of it i think comes back to finance if we had more resource it would make all of these things yeah. a lot easier yeah and is that about earning more money from your business model or or bringing more money in in terms of investment and donations and things? Um, I think it's a bit of both. It's definitely, um, we're really keen to grow our sales. And I, I think that is the like the sustainable way to grow. Um, but mm. also we, our business model hasn't allowed our um, business entity to access any grants um, for those extra costs that we incur for our apprenticeships and work experience placements, etc. So um uh, we've recently um, changed our articles to make sure that that is possible. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful that going forward, those additional costs will be able to be covered by grants or donations that will mean it is possible to make the, the sales cover all of the, the business costs. So what you just said, I think is quite important. It's a bit, a bit technical changing the articles and stuff, but essentially we're talking about changing the constitution of your company and how that constitution is written in order that you can more easily access certain kinds of funding that you couldn't access before. Yes. Um, so what was that? What, um, without getting into it in, a, in too much of a nerdy way, because I can get really nerdily interested <laughs> in this sort of stuff, but just in terms of, I think it's interesting for other social enterprise leaders um, because actually there are things that, that, you know, you think, oh, well, if I could only, if I only I was set up in this way, I could do that. So mm. can you explain in a little bit more detail yeah, kind of what I, was the problem? I think the easiest way to describe it is that we've taken our, we, we set ourselves up as a limited company. Um, and that yeah. was, um, really beneficial in enabling us to access investment, etc. Um, investors could, um, gain tax benefits, um, through us being a small enterprise. Um, but what that limited us in is that any of the social investors that we were speaking to in the kind of traditional sense, um, for example, there was a great, um, pot available through, um, the lottery um, social investment during um, the pandemic that we weren't eligible for because of our articles. Um, so we've been reviewing them and looking at the CIC articles, which is obviously a more um, standard social enterprise setup. 
um, and we've adopted the elements of the CIC that would make us, um, what was really helpful was talking to uh, someone within that fund who said, if you had this in your articles, we would be able to fund you, um, which was enormously helpful. So yeah, we've been working on that. Obviously our investors had to approve it um, because it is a change to what they signed up to, but they were really pro it. So we've essentially adopted uh, the model CIC uh, elements into our articles. Okay. But without becoming a, a community As, interest company. Yes. Yeah. I know. So essentially some stuff around some stuff around purpose, some stuff around looking in some of your assets and some stuff around re- redistribution of your profits, but exactly without looking that. in without looking in the really strict uh, and, and people would say rather restrictive rules and regulations of being a standard kick limited by guarantee or shares, yeah. Exactly that. Yeah, we're trying to get the best of both worlds, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm going to ask you about mistakes and failures now. Um, I don't know if you, if there's anything in particular that you're you're willing to admit to, but um, <laughs> it, we always try and focus in on something where people can hopefully sort of look at look at a, a mistake or particular failing in perspective and tell me what you've learned from it. Yeah, I think there are so many of these I can think of. um, And all of them have been learning experiences that have hopefully then meant I've done things differently and better going forward. Mm. I think the key thing, if I look back, has been, um, I guess it's quite a sensitive thing to talk about, but um, when someone hasn't been right for the role, um, taking too long to address that. um, And that has been because it's a very relational company um really really wanting to try and see people succeed um particularly if that person is a a graduate of our programs um you know we really really want her to succeed um but actually if it's not the right role for her it's it's really damaging to her but also the rest of the the organization so there's been a couple of situations that i i really look back and wish that i had addressed it sooner um because the inevitable happened anyway um, and the damage could have been, I guess, limited if we had um, been quicker in our actions. Okay, so let's move from mistakes to proudest achievements. I, no- I noticed you you just got an MBE, um, mm. but I'm sure there've been a lot of proud achievements. Congratulations on your MBE, by the way. Thank um, you. So tell t- tell us what you're what you're most proud about. Um, I actually think the kind of tangible thing that feels that I could point to to say is this is the thing that I'm really proud of is um, the cookbook that we produced um, a few years ago. Um, I actually had very little to do with the recipes and stuff, but it's a, um, a culmination of, all the women that we'd worked with to that point were invited to submit recipes um, and submit bits of their story. Um, So I just think it's a really, um, I can point to it as a, like a tangible example of the community of women that um, have been part of Luminary and that now help to shape Luminary as well. And and I think it it's those moments that help to level the playing field where it's not uh, staff doing something for women, but actually those women then doing something that contributes to the community and um, doing something together. And that is so beautiful. So I think the the cookbook Rising Hope is a really good example of that. And I want to see more of those types of things. 
I guess, yeah, it's a sort of almost like a, a physical manifestation of the mm. work that they've done and, and what they're capable of doing and uh, exactly. the journey they've been on, I guess, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. I, so is that available in all good bookshops? Or oh, it is. Cafe or... <laughs> yeah? Yes, yeah? absolutely, or on good. our website, luminarybakery.com. Right, so moving on to some elements of you as a, as a good leader. What do you think is a good leader, by the way? So, I, I, you know, we call this podcast Good Leaders. What, what in your view, makes up a good leader? I think uh, someone who's um, a really clear and good communicator is a key element. Um, I think someone who has a good work ethic, because otherwise you probably won't be respected. So um, and that, I think that goes hand in hand with integrity, um, people being able to trust that, you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Um, and then that links in with the communication. Um, I think there's loads of things. I, I know a lot of people talk now about um, being able to be vulnerable as a leader. Um, and again, that comes down to how you convey that and what's appropriate to share and when. So I think it's it's a lot of kind of discernment and trying to make good decisions and making good decisions um listening to other people and being able to admit when you're not in in the right or you made a mistake um but that probably comes back to integrity so when you talk to your team what do they tell you are your best and worst leadership qualities Oh, there's uh, quite a few worsts I think I can uh, call on. Things like, I mean, probably that's where my list came from, is the things that I've not done well. Um, uh, Being, yeah, knowing what to communicate when, I think is something my team often say, oh, you could have brought us into that conversation or decision sooner. Um, uh, But also a balance of... Um, one of the criticisms I sometimes get is getting too involved in the weeds. Um, and I guess a good leader is someone who's who's a visionary and can sit above that. Um, so, yeah, balancing those things. Um, but I think they do, to the sort of hard work and integrity point, I think they do say that they respect me. Um, so I think that um, probably, it's hard to know why that would be the case, but I think it is from, yeah, being able to trust what, I say. Yeah. They trust your authenticity, I guess, is it? Yes, right? I think so, yeah. And is your the course that you mentioned, is that helping you with your leadership skills as well? Or is that very much about the kind of management of the business and the Oh no, certainly. It's really it's developing me as a leader for sure. They the first module is about um strategy um and governance. So that's it's really sort of made me think about how we make organisational decisions, but obviously I'm quite key in making those decisions. So it's it's helped upskill me in frameworks for, yeah, decision making, for setting strategy. Um, and and I think so, so much of um, what we've been talking about is, um, you know, you mentioned imposter syndrome, but the opposite of that is feeling confident in your decisions and being therefore making good, quick decisions because you're like, I know this is the right thing to do. Um, so actually, yeah, having a bit of, back up in in my course means that I've made more confident decisions definitely knowing that your instincts are right I guess yeah Yeah. exactly and how about what's keeping you awake at night apart from the apart from the um apart from the wi-fi not working (laughs) what what are you what are you you waking up at three o'clock in the morning and thinking you know neither the wi-fi nor did I switch the commercial ovens off I guess (laughs) luckily that bit's not my job someone else's worry um 
Oh, it's our sales, to be honest. We really, really need some big corporate contracts. So, um, yeah, doing our best to get um, get some sales for International Women's Day booked in. That's coming up. And uh, usually corporates will contact us the day before and we need them booked in a little bit uh, further in advance than that to be able to take the opportunity. So, yeah, it's a crucial next few weeks to try and get those nailed. And cor- corporate procurement is a big old subject that we probably won't get into now. But, I mean... You know, one of the challenges is is um, as a as if you're into catering, you kind of have to be on a list um, which has been sort of selected by that corporate years before, and it's very difficult to get on that list. Or you'll be in a situation, I guess, where people know about you and they say oh, we're doing this thing next week. Um, you know, you've got three days to to do, you know, five hundred whatever's um you know yeah. and, and it's just not realistic so i guess that's the challenge isn't it what what's the best kind of corporate contract that you you could possibly hope for do you think um that we've had a few great examples and it's where it's actually not through the catering route it's where a um it doesn't really matter the department but where someone senior wants to treat their team or uh their clients and it's kind of seen as a gifting um opportunity rather than a catering one um so that's the sweet spot for us and um we can you know we can post items to people's homes and things so that worked really well particularly during lockdowns when uh, managers were looking to like make sure their teams knew that they were thinking about them and stuff um but also now that people are doing a, a bit more on-site in offices um doing something interactive with um with baked goods for an event um yeah gifts are the sweet spot for us and how about so if if corporate sales or other sales are keeping you awake at night uh, have you ever experienced burnout I mean because you take on all this responsibility yourself we spoke about the importance of having people around you to support you but do, do you ever feel burnt out have you ever felt burnt out and how have you dealt with that um it's a term that we talk about a lot and I think it's quite hard to define so I don't I I've been definitely at the point of of exhaustion and of feeling really drained. Um, I think the Jacinda Arden way that she put of like having nothing left in the tank um, is probably, you know, when you're literally at rock bottom, that's probably where I'd call burnout. And I think that would probably be the day that I, you know, stepped away from my role. So I've not been uh, at that point um, before. Uh, I think maybe the closest I've been to it was actually this last Christmas, um, when there were too many different types of pressures of uh, practical ones and financial and people all coming at the same time. Um, so yeah, having just been drained in all sorts of ways, battling the train strikes to try and get in, taking two and a half hours to need to start at five because there's no bakers and I need to fill their job for a bit. Um, so that, I definitely was my most exhausted at that point. Um, but I don't think I've reached burnout. I think I just needed a good rest and I'm back at it. And do you have a senior team who can take on some of that responsibility as well? Or, or is, uh, uh, you know, is it very much your shoulders that take all that 
Oh no, there's definitely a few of us that, that bear the load. So um, my right. finance lead is phenomenal. She was also helping pack brownies at, at Christmas with me. Um, and uh, our HR manager um, and our head of charity and social impact, they're our sort of senior management team. Um, so yeah, they definitely all feel it as keenly as I do. And I think our, our boards are super involved as well, both the charity board and the business board. So they are... Right. Um, yeah, they're obviously they're not in the day to day as much, but they are certainly helping to kind of uh, lighten the load a bit. And, and when you need to escape and um, get away from the business, what 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 do you do? How do you how do you relax? Have you got a family? Have you got hobbies? What does hmm. what does that all look like? Um, I love hanging out with my friends because they help me to wind down and let my hair down a bit. Um, but I guess it would just go around their houses, really. Um, I I do... Uh, like someone else is doing the cooking. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I don't have to bring cake. Um, yeah. I'm in a little band, so um, taking a okay. small hiatus while one of them has a baby. But uh, we have a lot of fun together making music. What sort of band? What sort of music? Uh, it's kind of folky um, Americana, maybe, if you know that mm-hmm. sort of genre. Um, okay little four-piece girl band uh, so yeah that's that's a, a good way of winding down otherwise lots of box sets okay so back to the business then what what's the next big exciting development on the horizon Where, what do you uh, I mean I'm sure there are things you've got your fingers crossed over that you maybe can't talk about but what can you talk about um, that you're really excited about oh, right say in the next year and maybe maybe a bit more of a visionary thing in the next five years in terms of where you want to go? Mm. Well, for our 10-year anniversary, we want to have some um, significant celebrations. So we have got um, an event in the pipeline that I haven't got any details on yet but it's coming um and also um yeah quite uh, sorry you've said things I can talk about and this one I probably don't have much I can share on either but a bit of a new um a new venture for luminary that yeah is not something we've done before but I'm quite excited to launch that for our birthday and then in terms of I think otherwise it's it's sort of business as usual for the rest of the year trying to knuckle down and get stable after after the pandemic and the cost of living crisis but that's not terribly exciting but (laughs) um in terms of longer term um we are often approached by organizations across the uk who say can you set up a luminary here we've got women who need it um so really trying to work out where the best expansion um route would be and that yeah we definitely want to launch a kind of replica luminary setup with the charity training programs and the the, the business trading elements in a different city it's really challenge isn't it replication is is exciting but a big challenge because replicating the business model is one thing but replicating the impact and the culture exactly. that made the whole thing possible in the first place yeah and replicating you and your colleagues is hard isn't it i mean yeah. franchising is a classic model for for some cafes and restaurants but again it's it's a hard one isn't it oh absolutely yeah you're hitting on a a very live uh conversation at the moment of how how Mm. do you expand as a social enterprise um 
Yeah, there's a brilliant organization I look to for inspiration in the States called Homeboy Bakery. Um, they've been yeah. going for about 30 years. Um, and they always say, we we do not franchise because you can't franchise people um, yeah. and impact. Uh, but then I've seen others where actually maybe it could work. So yeah, trying to work that out um, to be able to make a good expansion plan um, as mm. we speak, really. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. It does sound exciting. And Provided you can sort of pay your electricity bills and get your your Wi-Fi working, exactly. <laughs> sounds as though sounds as though you're you're on a very good journey. So, Thank congratulations. You. What we normally do at the end of our uh, podcast is have a series of sort of quick fire questions that um, we ask you to choose between um, one thing and another. Okay. So I'm going to fire some stuff at you sure. and just ask you to very quickly tell me. So here we go. Profit or purpose? Purpose. Business or charity? Oh! <laughs> uh, supposed to be quick fire. Um, <laughs> charity? Okay. Corporate catering or community cafe? These are hard. Um, community cafe. They're not very fair, but that's still. No, right. they're not. Sorry, community <laughs> cafe. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Cam- Camden or Hackney? Oh my goodness. Um, it's like choosing between your children. It is. Oh, <laughs> I hope none of my team hear this. Um, I'm going to say Hackney. Emmeline Pankhurst or Rosa Parks? Rosa Parks. Greta Thunberg or Malala Yousafzai? Malala. British Empire or British Excellence? Oh. And of course, I'm referring to the MBE here. So I'm inviting you to be controversial about this lovely thing that you've just been awarded oh thank you yeah british excellence please i don't know why that hasn't changed already okay chocolate brownie or sourdough chocolate brownie grants and philanthropy or social investment grants and philanthropy entrepreneurship or empathy oh empathy i think employability or independence independence Evolution or revolution? Mm, evolution, I think. Fantastic. So that's it. Alice Williams, founder of Luminary Bakery. Thank you very much indeed for joining the Good Leaders podcast. Thank you so much. It's been good fun. Thank you. You've been listening to Good Leaders podcast with me, Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post. If you like what you hear or have comments, questions or suggestions for guests, then please get in touch via Twitter at Pioneers Post or email goodleaders at pioneerspost.com.